Well, let's pray together this morning. Father God, I thank you that your word says that even though the grass withers and the flower fades, your word, it will stand forever. I thank you that you promise that your word will never return void. When it's proclaimed, Lord, you'll use it to touch hearts and change lives. And I pray you'll do that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you right now to hold it up and repeat after me what we believe about this book. This is God's Word. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It is the supreme source of truth. For what we believe and how we live. Now turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 13. John's Gospel, the 13th chapter. Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, died April the 5th, 1992. When he died, he was one of the wealthiest men in America. As a matter of fact, for three years prior to that, 1985, 1986, 1987, he was the wealthiest man in America. And he would have continued that streak. But in 87, he decided to divide his wealth among his family. And so instead of being the wealthiest man in America, there were about four or five of the wealthiest people in America. When Sam Walton started in 19. 62, he had one Walmart. By the time of his death, there were 1,735 Walmarts nationwide. Today, there are 4,648 stores and clubs throughout the United States. There are 10,000 others throughout the world. But before Sam Walton died, he was concerned about his country's future. And he said some words that I think are kind of prophetic. I want you to listen to what he said. He said, I worry about keeping the things that we believe in. And I think that's so true today. I think it's true for that generation. Many people who started and founded businesses on, on Christian principles, I think, began to be concerned that those principles would last. And then he went on to say this, the future lies not in the top officials but in the field managers. If we can instill in them, the grassroots people, what we have, namely that they are there to serve, we can keep the company right side up. And unfortunately, in my opinion, what Walton realized made a company great is no longer part of Walmart's culture. And sadly, I don't think it's a part of the culture of most businesses today in America. You see, instead of focusing on service, it seems like many businesses are focusing on the almighty dollar. And what they fail to understand is if you will focus on service, then the dollars will follow. But understand, service and serving isn't just something that businesses should do. It's something that should define our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. And the passage we're going to look at today is all about that. You see, our calling as Christ followers is not to sit 
and be served by someone else. Our calling is to get on our knees and serve others in Jesus' name. And that's what Jesus teaches here in this story. So if your Bibles are open to John chapter 13, I want you to follow along as we begin reading in verse 1. It says, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter explained, then wash my hands and my head as well. Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who is bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you, for Jesus knew who would betray him. And that is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put his robe on again. He sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Now let me give you a little context, if I may. It is now the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed. His public ministry is over, and he's meeting with his disciples to take the Passover meal one last time before he goes to the cross to take on the sins of the entire world. Matthew, Mark, and Luke use less than a chapter to tell us what happened that evening that Jesus was betrayed. But John uses six chapters. He goes into detail revealing things that Jesus said and things that Jesus did that none of the other gospel writers tell us. Jesus was using this intimate time to prepare his disciples for what would lie ahead. And some of the things that he told them, I believe, are some of the most important things found in Jesus' teaching. He told them that to not let their hearts be troubled, to have peace as they go through life. He told them that in his father's house were many rooms and he was preparing a room just for them. He told them about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's work in, in their lives and in, in the world itself. He told them about the, the importance of abiding with him. And then he prayed for them in John chapter 17. 
But as we look at chapter 13, we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Now, what we don't see in in John's gospel is evidently this event occurred shortly after what Luke tells us was an argument among the disciples. The disciples were arguing over who was the greatest of the disciples. Each were saying, I'm greater, I'm greater, I'm greater. And then in the midst of all of that, Jesus, the greatest of all, the great I am, gets down on his knees, puts a towel around his waist, and begins to wash his disciples' feet. Isn't it amazing how some things never change? We long to sit at the head of the table. We want to be the top dog. We want to be number one. And yet Jesus taught us that the secret of being a leader is being a servant. That the master of all came to serve those that he came to save. And so after they had eaten that meal, and after the disciples had finished arguing about who was going to be the greatest, Jesus got up. He took off his robe. He wrapped a towel around his waist. He poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the dirty feet of his disciples. So notice what it says in verses 12 through 13. It says, after washing their feet, he put on his robe again. He sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? And then he goes on to say, I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Then understand, this isn't about washing dirty feet. And it's certainly not about setting up an ordinance like baptism and communion. Jesus told us what this was. Jesus was setting an example that he wants us to follow as we walk through life. And so the question I have for you this morning is what can we learn from a towel and dirty feet? Well, I believe as we look at these 17 verses and as we unpack them, we see four things about the life of Jesus that I believe he was telling us we need to find in our life today. So let me give those to you. The first thing we see is we need to start with love and we need to end with love. It's all about our love. In verse 1, it says that Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father. If you recall, in John's gospel throughout, we see the phrase, his hour had not yet come. We see that the first time in John chapter 2 when Mary, Jesus' mother, came to Jesus and, and asked Jesus to, to turn the water into wine. And Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. And we see that phrase repeated throughout. But in John chapter 12 and in John chapter 13, we see that Jesus' hour has come. The cross is looming before him. And he knows he is about to leave his disciples, the 12 men, that he has poured his life into for the past three years. The Bible tells us that he loved these men dearly and he loved them to the very end. That word that is translated in there is the Greek word telos, which can mean complete. He loved them not only to the end of his life, he loved them completely. He loved them entirely. 
He loved them with every ounce and fiber of his being and his strength. And his love never failed. When they failed to measure up, he loved them. When they were slow to understand what he was teaching them, he loved them. When they abandoned him and denied him, he loved them. Of all the characteristics of Jesus, love was and is the most dominant. He was and is love. And his love causes action. His love caused him to come to earth and be born in a stable. His love caused him to live a life that was defined by compassion for other people. His love caused him to take up that cross and be crucified on that cross for the sins of the world. Everything Jesus did was because of his love. And his desire is that his love will flow through our lives. Later on in this chapter, in, in verses 34 and 35, Jesus said this. He says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. This, these verses have so much truth in them. Jesus tells us that love is a commandment. If we're going to walk in obedience, we must love, and we must love like Jesus. And his love was not mere words. His love was shown in his actions. And his love was not just in action. It was from the overflow of his heart. Jesus' love always sought to redeem, never to excuse Jesus' love always sought to lift up, never to tear down. Jesus' love was always pushing people for the best. It was never trying to pacify them with his words. Jesus' love was contagious, was infectious, was transforming. And we are called to love that way. Later on, the Apostle Paul, when he was speaking about love, said, if I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I wouldn't have gained anything. I would have gained nothing. Did you hear that? I mean, that's absolutely amazing because, you see, this is saying that love is more than an action. The Apostle Paul was saying that, that you can give everything you've got you can lay it on the line. You can go overseas to serve other people. But if it's not out of the overflow of the love of God in your heart, then it will amount to nothing. You see, love is not just a feeling, but it is a feeling. And love is not just an action, but it is certainly something that leads to action. When God gives us a new heart, it is a heart filled with love. I'm convinced that, that everyone, when they come to faith in Christ, they just love because we've experienced his love and, and his love flows in us and through us. Remember how Paul defined that love? He said love is patient. It's kind. It's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of wrongs. 
It doesn't rejoice with injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never lose faith. It always is hopeful. It endures through every circumstance. And that's how you and I are to love. So we begin with love. We end with love. If you and I want to live like Jesus, our life is going to ooze out the love of God. But then the second thing that we see in here is if we want to be like Jesus, we must surrender our power and will. Now verse 2 tells us that the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. Now the words that are translated prompted in the New Living Translation are, are a couple of Greek words. It literally means to put in the heart of. I want you to listen very carefully. Satan can put desires in your heart if you open the door of your heart. That's why the Bible makes it clear that we are to guard our heart. We are to set a guard over our heart. Because if we don't, Satan will come in and he will tempt us. And unfortunately, Judas had already given Satan an open door. The other Gospels tell us that Judas was a thief. He was a greedy man. So his heart was wide open to Satan's prompting. I want you to understand something. Satan cannot force you to do anything. You know that old expression, the devil made me do it? It's not biblical. The devil can't make you do anything. But what the devil can do is he can tempt you. He can compel you. And the more we give in to him, the more we find ourselves under his control until one day, if we aren't careful, we will find ourselves doing exactly what he wants us to do. Now notice verses 3 and 4. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. Another translation says it this way. The Father had put him in complete charge of everything. Another translation says the Father had given him complete power. What that means is that Jesus was in absolute control. He had total power. He could do anything he wanted to at that moment. You see, you need to understand that he could have taken away Judas' free will. He could have changed Judas's mind to betray him. He could have spoken a word and Judas would have dropped dead on the spot. He could have just opened his mouth and told the other disciples, it's Judas who will betray me and I will bet you that they would have stopped Judas. At any moment, Jesus could have said, I am not doing this. He could have stopped his arrest. He could have stopped the trial. He could have stopped the crucifixion. At any moment when he was hanging on that cross, he could have come down off of that cross. He had the power to do that. And yet he didn't. He surrendered his will to the Father's will even though it led to his death. You know, it's not always easy to surrender to the Father's will. To be perfectly honest with you, sometimes it's difficult to surrender to the Father's will. But that's what we're called to do. You're okay. 
We are to do what pleases us. We're not to do what's easy for us. We're not to do what makes us happy in the moment. We are to live our lives in total surrender to the Father's will, whatever he leads us to do, wherever he calls us to go. Let me say that again. We are to live our lives in complete surrender to the Father's will. And that's tough. And the reason it's tough is because by nature we're selfish people. By nature we're self-centered people. By nature we want to avoid what is uncomfortable. We want to avoid what is painful. But the reality is if we are willing to surrender completely to the Father's will, there are times that His will will lead us right into the center of those things. And so let me ask you a question. Have you surrendered to the Father's will regardless of where it leads? Regardless of what it cost? Because if you're going to walk like Jesus, the example he followed, that's what it takes, surrendering completely to his will. Third thing we see in this passage is if we're going to walk like Jesus, we've got to serve others. Can you imagine the hush in that room? The embarrassed looks on the faces of the disciples as Jesus, the master, the great I am, got down on his knees and began to wash his disciples' feet. They had been arguing about who is the greatest. There was probably a, a basin there because Jesus got the basin and filled it with water. Probably they were arguing over who's going to do that. I'm not going to do it. I'm better than you. You do it. You're the one that messed up yesterday. You need to wash feet. I'm not washing feet. And they were arguing, and yet Jesus gets down and washes their feet. Now, foot washing wasn't an unusual thing in that day. It's a common occurrence. Because, you see, people didn't have shoes like we have today, and they either went barefoot or they wore open toed sandals and so as they walked through the dusty dirty rows their feet got dirty they would get muddy sometimes their feet would get caked with with human and animal waste because the animals would just go where they were and so you'd get that on your feet and so in every town there were public baths where you could go and when you entered the town and and there would be a servant there that would wash your feet when you went to someone's house who was wealthy when you entered their house they would have a servant that would meet you and they would wash your feet before you entered the house typically in anyone's house they would offer someone to do that when you entered their home when you rented a room to have some kind of banquet or ceremony it often came with a servant who would wash the feet of the guests who were coming in but but evidently, they didn't have a servant to wash the feet as they came in. And so Jesus got up and washed their feet. Let me ask you a question. Are you more like Jesus or more like the disciples? They were arguing about who was the greatest because they didn't want to wash feet. And Jesus, who was the greatest, got down on his knees and washed their feet. Are you ready for someone to serve you? Or are you willing to serve other people? 
back when President Ronald Reagan died, George H.W. Bush, who was his vice president during his presidency, was asked to give the eulogy. And, and he decided to tell the story that happened in 1981 when Ronald Reagan was shot. Someone tried to assassinate him, and, and he had had surgery in the hospital, and he was in the hospital, and, and in walked one of his aides, and and when the aide walked into the room, there was President Ronald Reagan, the most powerful man in the world, on his knees, wiping up some water from the floor. The aide came in and said, President Reagan, what are you doing? And he said, I wanted to get up this water so that the nurse wouldn't get in trouble. Evidently, one of the nurses had accidentally spilled some water, didn't notice it, and and he knew that someone came in and saw that someone would get in trouble because this was the president. And what if he stepped on that water and fell? What if someone else did? And he didn't want to get anyone in trouble. So he, the president, instead of calling someone, got out of bed after surgery, got on his knees, and got up that water. That's the kind of attitude we need to have. A desire to serve others rather than be served by others. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. See, the Bible teaches that we need to get our eyes off of ourselves and put them on other people. We need to be willing to see their hurt and their pain and their sorrow, their heartache, their helplessness and their hopelessness. And hopefully, hopefully, when we get our eyes off of ourselves and we put our eyes on others and we see their needs, we will step in and meet those needs. We love from beginning to end. We surrender our will. We serve. But then there's a third, fourth thing that Jesus teaches here, and that is we need to stay clean. And so Jesus is down on his knees washing his disciples' feet. And when he gets to Peter, Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus said, you don't understand now. Just trust me. And, and Peter, as Peter had a tendency to do, says, stop. You're not ever going to wash my feet. Now, in Greek, Peter used a double negative. Now, we know that we're not supposed to use double negatives. I discovered that in, in high school honors English. Should have known it before then, but somehow I missed it. And I was in an honors English class, and the teacher asked a question, and I said, well, I ain't never doing that. And the teacher looked me in the eyes and said, what did you say? I said, I'm sorry. I'm not never going to do that. <laughs> she looked me in the eyes and said, get out of my classroom. Go to the principal right now. I went, what? She thought I was being defiant. I wasn't defiant. I was dumb. <laughs> I just hadn't paid attention. I, I missed it. In English, a double negative is a bad thing. But in Greek, it's a good thing. It adds power to what you're saying and what Peter was saying is there is no way I will ever let you wash my feet and Jesus said 
If I don't wash you, you can have no part with me. And then Peter said, well, if that's the case, don't just wash my feet. Give me a complete bath. Wash me all over. And Jesus said, if you've already had a bath, and you have, you don't need another bath. You just need your feet washed. Now, what was Jesus teaching in that? He was teaching us about sanctification. He was teaching us about getting clean with God. Now, the word used for bathe, for bath, is a word that means complete washing, to wash your entire body. It's used in this passage a couple of times. And every time it's used, it's in the perfect tense, which means that when you wash yourself completely, it's a once-for-all-time action. So Jesus is saying, if you've been washed completely, you don't ever need to do it again. Now, we know he's not talking about physical washing because if you washed one time and you didn't wash again, people would not be sitting beside you right now. You would stink. Jesus wasn't talking about physical washing. He was talking about spiritual washing, being washed by the blood of Jesus. You see, that happens when we come to the point in our life where we realize we're sinners and we don't deserve heaven, we deserve hell, and, and we cry out to Jesus and ask him to save us, trusting him to be our Savior, giving our lives to him as our Lord. And, and Asher, my granddaughter, did that yesterday as a seven-year-old. She doesn't understand everything. Goodness, I don't understand everything as a 62-year-old. But at seven years old, she knew she was a sinner. And she knew that she didn't deserve to go to hell, a heaven. She deserved to go to hell. She understood that. And she knew that her only hope was Jesus. And so humbly, she asked Jesus to forgive her, to save her. And as best she knew how, as a seven-year-old, she gave Jesus her life. She was washed by the blood of Jesus. The Apostle Paul describes it this way when he was writing Titus. He said, when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you, have you been washed? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing flood? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Can you say that Jesus has given you a new birth? Jesus said if you've been washed, you only need to do that one time. You don't need to get saved over and over and over again. When you're saved, you're saved. And praise God, you'll stay saved. But as we walk through life in a world that is dirty, and wouldn't you agree that our world in which we live is dirty? I mean, it's filled with garbage and filth and moral decay. And as we walk through life, there are times that sin captures our heart. Sin clings to our mind. Sin makes its way into our actions, and we get dirty. Even though we've been bathed and we love the Lord, we get dirty by sin, and we need a washing and when this happens, we come to the Lord. David understood this in the Old Testament. David, who was a man after God's own heart, sinned terribly. He committed adultery. He had someone murdered. 
I mean, it doesn't get much worse than that. He did some terrible things as a man who loved the Lord. But then he prayed, wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. He knew. He knew that it was not enough to just straighten up his life. He needed to come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. The Apostle Paul or the Apostle John said the same thing in 1 John. He said, but if we confess our sins to him, to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. As followers of Jesus, as we walk through life, there are going to be times, unfortunately, that we allow sin to take over our life. But aren't you glad that when that happens, God doesn't say, I'm done with you? You messed up. You blew it. Leave my presence. That's not what he says. Even when we mess up to the worst degree, his hands are open. He says, come to me and I will cleanse you. And if we come to him with a humble heart, confessing our sin, seeing our sin the way God sees our sin, he will cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. So Jesus was using this not just to teach them about service was using this to teach them that they needed to stay clean as they walked through life now notice how this story ends verse 17 jesus says now that you know these things god will bless you for doing them the king james says god will make you happy the greek word there is the greek word makaros which is a happiness that flows from the inside out you see, most of us search for a happiness that, that is a result of what happens, our circumstances. We get a new job, we get happy. We get a promotion, we get happy. We enter into a new relationship, we get happy. We, you can fill in the blanks and, and that makes us happy. But when our circumstances change, when things happen, our happiness tends to disappear. But Jesus said that when you do these things, I'll give you a happiness that doesn't come from what happens to you. It's a happiness that comes from within because of who lives inside of you. So I want you to listen. When we live a life that is surrendered to God, and we use our life serving others. And as we walk through life seeking to remain sanctified, holy, clean before God, all because the love of God is flowing through us, then we'll be living a life that is pleasing to God. So what about you? I mean, as Jesus was preparing his disciples, he used a terrible instance the disciples arguing about greatness to teach his disciples some incredible truths about what it really means to follow the example of Jesus. Every one of us are called to follow that example. Every one of us. The problem is, unless Christ is living in your heart, you're never going to do it. Unless Christ is living in your heart, you're going to be pursuing the things of this world instead of Jesus. 
So if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, you've never surrendered all completely to him, acknowledging your sin, trusting him to be your savior, giving him control of your life as your Lord, then I beg you, I plead with you, do that today. Oh, dear friend, don't leave here. Don't let your pride, don't let your fear, don't let anything, your sin that you think is making you happy, don't let any of these things keep you from giving your life to Jesus today. But if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, like these disciples, and surrender it all, because that's where it begins. Live a life of service. It's not about sitting in the chair. It's about getting on our knees and serving others. Stay clean. Do all of that because you love Jesus and you love other people. Maybe, just maybe, he will use us to bring what we desperately need, a revival. Because revival doesn't start out in the world. It starts with us getting our hearts right, our lives right. So are you willing to do that today? In just a moment, we're going to stand. We're going to sing. I'm going to be down front. Pastor Matt's going to be down front. And if you're here and you need to give your life to Jesus, don't let anything keep you standing in front of your seat. As soon as we begin to sing, you come and you tell one of us, I need Jesus. What do I need to do? If you're a Christ follower, we encourage you to come to this altar. Just give it all to him. Father God, this is your time. I know my words cannot do anything to change a life, but your words can. I pray, Father, that you'll use your words today change for eternity. Amen. Stand with me.